this yes. is hell. All right, then. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. And we've had a lot of guests on the show of late who have been talking about violence conducted by police. Cruel, brutal violence that is often racialized, targeting people of color. We talked about police crackdowns against political dissent in Turkey, Greece, France, the UK, the US. It's seemingly happening everywhere. And if there is a global uprising, as if there's a, a global uprising against police violence everywhere. So we thought we'd take a break from what appears to be a worldwide revolution against the violence committed by cops to discuss an uprising of another kind. Colombia has seen weeks of civil unrest as citizens rose up against a new plan by the government to address an economy collapsing due to the pandemic. The problem is the new plan is like all of the old plans for Colombia, which repeatedly makes things more and more unequal as the fabulously wealthy get even more rich and the cost of everything falls on the backs of the poor. After dozens were killed, the government decided their tax proposal, which would have put an unfair burden on the poor, was probably not the best idea and decided not to implement it after all. However, that does not stop the protests, which are no longer only about a sales tax hike. They're now about a lot more, including, you guessed it, the police violence being conducted by the government's special riot police. But possibly more than anything, the uprising in Colombia may be an uprising not only against inequality and the police, but the neoliberalism that causes that inequality and the cops who enforce that neoliberalism. In a few minutes, we'll go to Colombia to find out exactly what is happening in an uprising that is now into its third week and shows no signs of letting up when we will be speaking with Alejandra Marine Buitrago, who wrote the... Counterpunch article, Columbia on the Brink. Alejandra is a PhD student in urban planning at the University of Illinois at Chicago, my alma mater. She's a Colombian lawyer and a former law professor in the Colombian cities of Pereira and Bogota, and she will be speaking to us live from Pereira. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host Chuck Mertz producing this week's show, or actually today's show. If it's Monday, it must be Jess Lipka. Jess, how have you been? I haven't seen you for a couple weeks. I'm doing great, yeah. How was your weekend? It was nice, yeah. Um, I, I haven't done all that much. I got I got a lot of work done. It's been good. <laughs> work done, school work done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sweet. So when's your turn on? Just a few weeks. I'm coming up on the end. Yeah. Good luck, my friend. For me, the fir- it was the first time uh, since the pandemic started that I actually socialized with people who are not part of my two-person, two-cat pod. I mean, I had a passing beer here and there with others, uncomfortable beers. I could not wait to finish so I could get the hell away from the other people drinking around me. But this was an actual sit-down-and-hang-out-like event with friends from out of state who were visiting Chicago, and every part of that would have been incredibly frightening to me only a few weeks ago. And now a friend is coming to town from overseas, so I have to go through a whole new set of mental gymnastics to overcome the uneven bars of cautious fear and bold recklessness. More importantly than any of that, Jess, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is what got you kicked out of the commune? (laughs) What got you kicked out of the commune? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. 
So thanks to all of you for your support. And some of you have recently gone to thisishell.com and clicked on support. So thanks to Andrew J., Jeremy W., Kelly H., Mitchell S., and Lena R. Thanks, Andrew, Jeremy, Kelly, Mitchell, and Lena for going to thisishell.com and contributing when you click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to me at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, as we do every week, following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Jess will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, the question from hell is... What got you kicked out of the commune? What got you kicked out of the commune? Brave enough to be streaming live. Dumb enough to be goofy. Stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Jess has this week's hangover cure. With our apologies to recent guest, James Doucet Battle, author of Sweetness in the Blood, Race, Risk, and Type 2 Diabetes, this week's hangover cure is sugar water. According to the article, How to Stop Feeling Sick After Drinking, Four Proven Hangover Cures, which was posted at the UK's Express, most people want to reach for carbohydrates and junk food when they're hungover, but you might be better off having something sugary. The Express reports that Britain's National Health Service website explains sugary foods might help you stop shaking and trembling. That <laughs> <laughs> if that's the problem you're having when you're hungover, that you're shaking and trembling, I think your your issue is more yeah. than just one single hangover. Yeah, you're past sugary food. Exactly. <laughs> you're having the DTs. That's delirious tremens. Um, they suggest you can either eat something with sugar in it or add a few teaspoons to a glass of water. BBC Good Food recommends adding six teaspoons of sugar and a half a teaspoon of salt into a liter of water to mimic a sports rehydration drink. This should replace the sugars and essential salts your body has lost while topping up on the water your body is craving. That makes this week's hangover cure. Six teaspoons of sugar and a half a teaspoon of salt into a liter of water, unless you're diabetic. <laughs> That's disgusting, by the way. Doesn't that sound horrible? Yeah. <laughs> I do not want to use this hangover cure, and I suggest nobody else does either. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model, this is hell and you can help with our horrible business model of putting people before profits by going to by subscribing to our weekly friday patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell on this past friday's patreon podcast we shared an interview we did way back in 2002 19 years ago when the church of the nativity what many christians believe is the birthplace of jesus christ was under siege by Israeli security forces as protesters supporting the Palestinian people had fled to the building for sanctuary. That siege went on for nearly six weeks. During that time, the Israeli government made repeated claims that the protesters were actually terrorists holding hostage 200 Franciscan monks who were stationed at the church. With the Israeli police raid last week of the Al-Aqsa Mosque on you know one of... Uh, Islam's holiest sites last week. We thought it would be a good time to offer some historical context, so we shared our interview from during that siege with Ghassan Andoni, director of the Palestinian Center for Rapprochement Between People, which was supporting and assisting the protesters inside the church. And yes, those 200 Franciscan monks insisted they were not being held hostage. Meanwhile, I imagined a dystopian future where prisons have shut and inmates are instead detained through electronic monitoring in their own homes, making their home 
a jail where police are replaced with constant surveillance and the only cops still with jobs are the private ones protecting the rich while their former colleagues seek vengeance on the people that dared rise up against their brutality, unleashing what were cop gangs openly operating in police stations across the country. The ex-cops become violent mobs exploited by the wealthy to keep down uprisings, eventually attaining political power and, with the blessing of the rich, become a political movement that finally implements the police state they have always wanted. But you can only hear an interview taking place during a siege by Israeli security forces in the very scary but possible future of policing by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Coming up, the uprising in Colombia was about taxes, but it's now about a lot more. We'll also have This Week in Rotten History, some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what got you kicked out of the commune? What got you kicked out of the commune? And we'll be telling you what's coming up this week here on This Is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is Hell, Colombia, like the entire planet, is suffering from the devastation of the pandemic. Of course, being a developing economy, things are worse in Colombia due to a relative lack of resources. To address their economic shortcomings, the government proposed a new tax, a tax so unpopular that the people took to the streets en masse. And even after the government decided to roll back the tax plan, the protesters and protests remain here to help us understand what is happening in Colombia. Alejandro Marin Bichago wrote the Counterpunch article, Colombia on the Brink. Welcome to This Is Hell, Alejandra. Hey, hi, Chuck. Is Thank you so much for having me. Alejandra is speaking to us from Pereira, Colombia. She's a PhD student in urban planning at the University of Illinois at Chicago, a Colombian lawyer and a former law professor in the Colombian cities of Pereira and Bogota. So you write that Colombia has experienced the most widespread civil unrest of its modern history since Wednesday, April 28th. Millions of people have taken to the streets to fight back against a regressive national tax reform bill. The bill, farcically called the Law of Sustainable Solidarity, aimed to cover budgetary shortfalls resulting from the paralysis of the economy brought on by COVID. In fact, the legislation was a cynical attempt by right-wing President Ivan Duque to shift the burden of the economic crisis onto those who can least afford it. How would have the burden been shifted in President Duque's plan? What was the problem that people had with this new tax? Well, um, basically, this is one of uh, uh, a series of tax reforms that Duque implemented. And in those reforms, he always focused on taxing the middle income people that middle income in Colombia is considered something above um, $200 a month income for a family. And uh, he forgets, he keeps forgetting on uh, including the 10% with higher income in the country. They, they also didn't include the big companies, the big corporations in this reform. And on top of that, they were uh, increasing the sales taxes on basic products, such as coffee or sugar, and those kind of things that for people that is 
uh, in the worst uh, moment of the poverty indicators in the country is totally absurd to think that they can afford it. So it was a very comprehensive reform. They call it solidarity because they were plan they were planning to uh, increase revenues to keep this uh, basic rent that they implemented right after the pandemic for 3 million Colombians that they were planning to keep with that program, paying these poor families about $50 a, a month that for those families who have nothing is at least a, some basic needs a day. Uh, but they were planning to do that by taxing people that were no far from those poorest families in terms of income. And of course, people had a protest before in 2019 for another reform that uh, created plenty of benefits and exemptions for big uh, mining companies and oil companies. And after that protest, nothing happened and the government never uh, sit with the uh, unions to plan something more inclusive, more participated, participating. And this time uh, it was just too much and other things added to the uh, unrest and the, the protest is just going stronger. Uh, I wrote that article after the first week. Now we have, be, we have had 20 days of demonstrations. So were these protests originally only about this new tax plan or was there a lot of other lingering discontent that was simmering within the Colombian people? And if it was this tax plan that led to the protests, why, why do you think it was this tax plan that finally got people out into the streets? It was a general discontent. This is one of those cases in which all these tensions that were hidden for a long time, like class, uh, inequality, uh, exclusion, just reached the point of critical mass and then people were called by the unions. But usually the, the protests called by the unions last a couple of days. And now we are having 20 days and it's a spontaneous movement like horizontally organized mostly youth and they they don't really have someone who rules them or control them which is really convenient because when you protest in Colombia you are in high risk um, so this is highly unusual and people just kind of took all this anger uh, for years of inequality plus um, the pandemic at this situation of hunger, basically, because uh, people, uh, I mean, losing income, the, the, the middle income, it, mm, like 5% five, five of the population that was in the middle income uh, segment uh, exited that, that segment, and we have more extreme poverty. Basically, people are just desperate, hung, hang, uh, angry, and with nothing to lose, so I think it was like a perfect storm of the impopular task reform 
plus all these other situations. So let's talk about the violence, the police violence that's happening there. The last report I saw was at least 42 people have died in the violence so far. You write that Amnesty International has called the use of force by ESMAD, E-S-M-A-D, that's the riot police of Colombia. They've called that excessive and unnecessary, and the U.N. reported its own mission in Cali was attacked and threatened by the police. So what is this ESMAD? What is this organization? Is, is their singular mission to crack down on protests? Okay, first, first of all, this, this map, the riot police, they are national police. They have all control from, from the, what, we, what you would call the federal government. And um, yeah, they only show up for these moments of social unrest, uh, very well armed. And they, something that I had I never seen before, they have been attacking the protesters in a way, like in an open, direct way. Uh, maybe it's the way they done it before. It's just, as you know, now everybody has a camera and everything is being recorded. Uh, yeah, we have 16 cases of sexual violence. We have 42 people that were killed here in my city. Uh, we have two uh, uh, young guys that were killed, not by this map, but just random people in motorcycle that show up to the protest and uh, just shoot at them. Um, yeah, other than that, you can see the images are very uh, cruel and very shocking. What you see in Cali and Bogota, in Cali, this map is concentrated in the lower income neighborhoods that in the case of, God, of Cali are also the neighborhoods of the black and brown population because there they have also an issue of race that came out right now with the protest, but was one of these hidden tensions that I told you about before. And I don't think they, they, they don't see that there is any um, concern or any criticism or action from the government about their behavior. So they feel they have license to go out and shoot at the protesters and the unfair uh, detentions are like more than a thousand. And the government hasn't say anything uh, strong about the behavior of the SMAT. It seems that they, they kind of support them uh, because they have criticized the, the violence of the protesters. They call them uh, vandalists. They call them they, they said that they're infiltrated by a, a spark or by uh, other groups. So they have all this theory of uh, left-wing parties because we have elections next year. So they said, basically, the protesters are surrendered by all these other forces and that justify, from the government perspective, that justify the actions of the, of the SMAT. And as long as the map don't see like any strong uh, order from the national government, 
I just think they're going to keep acting like this. You also point out that these protests have been attacked by the Esmad riot police, but have remained, the protests have remained largely peaceful. At night, the security forces' reign of terror begins. So, to you, what explains why the riot police are acting violently if the protests are peaceful? Why, why is it so important to have a national riot police in Colombia? Well, I think the first reason why they are acting like this is because they can and they have gotten away with that for so long, just in a small scale. And now we see it uh, and we are so astonished about this because we see it in a massive proportion and we see it everywhere in, in social media. But I don't think they just decided that they can be so violent right now. In 2019, when we have this first protest, uh, uh, another guy in Bogota was killed um, by uh, non-lethal um, ammunition that was shot directly at him when all the protocols, uh, international protocols said, you throw these tear gas or these uh, rubber bullets, uh, just to scare people and to you throw it to the to the ground, not directly at people. And that happened in 2018 with Dylan in Bogota, and he became the martyr of that uh, protest. Uh, I think also there is something in our culture that really criminalized and uh, criminalized protest and anything that is related with claiming social justice is seen uh, by all the sectors, not only the government as you're being uh, a communist, uh, supportive of the left. And that has a really bad connotation in a country that had a guerrilla for 50 years, a left-wing guerrilla for 50 years. Um, you ask people like my mom generation or my, my grandparents generation, they have more the belief that uh, you shouldn't be there, you shouldn't go to the protest, and if something happened to you, kind of they are right. Uh, that's changing right now because uh, all this pressure that the, the, the pandemic and the poverty put on people, and also the youth, are totally out of that mentality. They totally support the protest and they are the ones that are putting themselves out there and ex exposing everything to, to keep this fight. But I think basically the SMAT do it because they can get away with this. Uh, we haven't seen any um, like strong measure against a member of the SMAT for previous actions in protest. So they don't have any accountability. And you write that across Colombia, reports have emerged of kidnappings, assassinations, random shootings at unarmed crowds and rapes. As Bogota-based El Tiempo columnist Sandra Borda said in an interview with the New York Times, Duque appears to be offering an olive branch to protesters during the day and sending police and thugs out to kill protesters by night. 
thugs. Last Monday, we started the, the week by speaking with Sayan Deb Chowdhury and Rajendran Narayanan. <laughs> I knew I was going to get that name wrong. Co-authors of the monthly review article, A Made in India Shock Doctrine, with a little help from Latin America. Sayan Deb and Rajendran write, like the Pinochet regime of the 70s and 80s, Prime Minister Modi's current BJP regime in India has centralized its mechanisms of arrests and detentions, invoking the unlawful activities prevention act and using the national investigation agency there is however one subtle difference between the two regimes unlike pinochet the bjp has decentralized its acts of vandalism and violence consequently one does not often see a civil war like situation but instead splintered acts of violence local riots lynching of atomized muslims and disparate abject violence against women and dalits so is Duque in any way executing a similar strategy as Modi is in India, that being making the civil war that is taking place invisible by using mobs who do not wear uniforms? Yeah, I see videos of that happening, but that's kind of something that you expect in a country that has had paramilitary for so long. And we know about those paramilitary forces in cities. Um, but the, the thing that surprised me is that the police do it with the uniforms during the day. And then it's more like at night kind of thing. Or in Cali, in Cali has been, uh, they have had shootings from people uh, in uh, no wearing uniforms. Uh, but yeah, the surprising thing here is that the SMAT uh, or the police are like chasing or like hunting people uh, wearing their uniforms and just using this brutality without any considerations to the consequences. I guess because they they usually don't have consequences. So what to, uh, to what extent is military-style equipment being used against protesters? And do you think that use or access to military-style equipment makes the riot police even more violent? Yeah, they are very well equip- equipped, definitely. Um, we, I mean, despite we needed that tax reform to get the basic revenue for that basic rent or for uh, just the, the normal functioning of the government, we do have plenty of money to spend in arms. I mentioned in the article during the time where the reform was discussed under discussion, they also were, uh, they also had this project of buying uh, 20 something uh, uh, war uh, planes uh, from the United States. And this uh, image in, in the south of Bogota of the, this tank of the SMAT uh, shooting at people with this very sophisticated uh, launcher of some ammunition and then uh, someone elevate a petition asking what was that and how much was that a venom or and the, the ammunition of for that function and it was a ton of money like 70 71 dollars for each projectile and they were sure not people with that 
while they were protesting for, for a tax reform that the government said that is so important to collect some uh, money for basic programs. Um, so they are well equipped, but mo in most of the cities it's just tear gas and uh, all the, the basic things that they, they use, but they go in groups against one of two protesters. There is a Gerin, um, was a Gerin Popajan that a few days ago killed herself because she was sexually assaulted by a, a group of SMAP that were recorded taking her to arresting her while touching her and treating, treating her with a lot of cruelty and the girl, 70 years older, just killed herself the next day after she was released. Um, I see a lot of um, macho kind of violence in these actions. Those guys in this video that I mentioned were saying, because she was resisting and they were saying, but how a woman is gonna win against four machos, uh, as they mentioned it. And I think, yeah, it's also a matter of pride in some cases for them. So how is the media in Colombia covering this? Are they pointing out all the abuses by the riot police? Are they more uh, state uh, biased? What, how is the media uh, covering this in Colombia right now? Okay, we have two main, two private channels that are basically like two Fox News. Uh, so Caracol and RSCN, um, they are owned by big corporations that are also own everything else in the country. Uh, what you see there is like the rhetoric of uh, protesters being uh, criminals and they focus on uh, the few places like a, a small police station in Bogotá that was set on fire, um, another police station, another uh, metro station here in Pereira that was also set on fire. And that kind of actions uh, is funny because this week they, they show like a dad that went to the rallies to take out his son out of the rallies with a belt, like beating up his son for being in the rallies. So they were like, you know, a lot of uh, air to that situation. Like this is the generation that works so hard and never complain about anything. And uh, kind of, they mentioned that the father said, yeah, I let him go to the protest, but they are acting like vandalos. They are acting like criminals. And the guy was in the middle of the protest, taking his son out with a belt. And they were showing that kind of things, like uh, comparing the generation of hardworking, never uh, complain or never claim for anything, uh, with this generation of uh, the youth that are basically the main actors in these uh, demonstrations. That's, it's just astounding to me because that's so much like the coverage was here during Black Lives Matter protests last summer when they gave a lot of airtime to a mother who went to a protest and took her son out of the Black Lives Matter protest. It's like, it's the exact same template seems to be used 
all over the world when it comes to disseminating this, you know, uh, right wing propaganda. And you write that the mayor of Pereira, where you are right now, has offered rewards for capturing the gunman and hundreds of thousands of viewers have seen the killing of Lucas Villa Vargas, a human rights uh, champion. His assassination online amongst Pereiranos. Oh, my God, I'm really doing bad today. There is little doubt that Villa's murderer was a hired gun. Lucas's leadership had become highly visible among the protesters in Pereira. Sadly, such recognition in social justice protests often comes with a high cost in Colombia. How often is recognition as a leader of a social justice protest in Colombia, a death sentence. And if it is typical, how effective has it been in undermining social justice in Colombia? Well, basically, uh, you're a leader in those areas. You, you might end up dead or uh, as a refugee in another country, which is what is happening with a Lucas Villa family that they are, uh, we had a, Today, like a commission of the human rights, um, I forgot the word, like observation committee or something. And that's one of the petitions that his family needs to leave. And today, uh, the Peace Commission of the Senate uh, is going to hold a meeting here in Pereira. And they were trying to uh, invite like the first line of the protesters. And since, as I told you, there are no like visible leaders because this is a type of Black Lives Matters organization that is horizontal. Uh, I talked with uh, some of the members of the city council that were trying to contact these people, like more like in a snowball method of finding them. And they all say, we go, we are gonna cover our faces all the time. Last week, the mayor tried to negotiate with some of the of the students in the protest, and they entered the place with the face covered. And he said, I'm not going to negotiate with people that don't show their faces. And he left. But that's basically the, the, the rule in Colombia. And unfortunately, Lucas, just during that day, you can see videos of him um, like talking to people in buses about why the protest, like um, uh, talking with the smart, like trying to uh, shake hands with the smart and dancing, he made himself so visible that day. And if someone show up at 7 p.m. in that bridge where 30 people were uh, holding a rally and he got eight shots you definitely think this is no, this is not just a coincidence. Uh, he was very vocal about this, and that's why he became the martyr of these these protests. And you point out how in Colombia, a member of Congress earns 34 times the minimum monthly sal- salary. Congressmen and women also receive a monthly quota of plane tickets, a rented bulletproof car, insurance, cell phone plans, and staff salaries for a total monthly cost per member of uh, Congress, $25,837 in U.S. dollars. So to what extent is the problem, I mean, if there's that big of a gap between the elected representatives and the people, 
to what extent is the problem the disconnect between the elected representatives and the people that they are supposed to represent? Can they? I mean, when you when you're making that much more money than the average person, 34 times the amount of money, can you effectively or accurately represent the people you're supposed to be representing? Well, I don't think so. I, I think that disconnection is a big part of our the way we we rule this country because yeah, the people in government, like most of them had never struggled financially while 70% of the population is in a very vulnerable condition. Um, that's one of the things that during the pandemic became more obvious and make people more angry because they were saying like, how, how is that the teachers are paying for their own internet? to keep teaching online while we pay to congressmen and congresswomen almost everything, their cell phone plans, uh, big staff, uh, they have chauffeurs, they have bodyguards, they have these big cars. And yeah, that was justified at a certain point where we were, this country where like, you have like bombs or, or shootings against a high, a people in high positions all the time, but after peace accords, you don't justify this uh, waste. And the Green Party, a couple of years ago, they tried uh, by collecting uh, signatures, like a million signatures from people, they tried to present a bill to decrease the salary uh, of people in, in, in the Congress. And of course, at the end, was the Congress the one that need to vote that? And of course they said, well, I have a conflict of interest and the, the reform didn't find enough voters to make that change. But people still want to fix that inequality because uh, yeah, it makes people very angry that uh, we are paying all that and that they never think about reducing their salary as a way to contribute to this big gap that put us in the necessity to implement a reform in the first place. And that inequality, uh, that inequality is in institutionalized through what you call, you write, across society, climate inequality is backed by a well-consolidated stratum system. In the strata system, urban areas get assigned a number from one to six according to the quality of the dwellings and urban development. The stratum system is unique to Columbia, designed in the late 60s to redistribute utility costs by assigning subsidies to low strata, one and two, through overpayments from high strata five and six. However, in reality, it has become a widespread mark of status and contributes to discrimination and social immobility. Why did a system meant to take the excess from the rich and give it to the poor turn into, essentially, a government and infrastructure imposed caste system? Yeah, it's a caste system, as you mentioned it. Uh, yeah, it's, you see how Indians talk about themselves and how they, they ask questions the first thing they ask to situate you, where are you from or where do you live? Or because all those things mean something in, in terms of uh, how, how to position you when you just met someone in the ladder of status. For us, it's a strata. And basically that's what's going on with that. Uh, it had a good intention at the beginning, like uh, utilities here are very expensive. Uh, 
uh, like you pay, you might pay 30% of what you pay on rent on utilities. So yeah, they decided we are going to contribute by making this, the high strata to pay a little bit more and then put that in a fund and subsidize the strata one and two and three. But now, um, yeah, it's basically a, a sign of exclusion and you go for an interview for a job, uh, people will ask you what's your strata and in those cities that are very uh, classist, they will discriminate you uh, based on that information on your strata. Uh, and then it became like race in the United States, you know, like if you ask me what is an indicator, what is a predictor of people uh, dying for COVID, you see the, the numbers and uh, most of the uh, deaths were in those three first levels. Uh, if you ask me what are the probabilities of someone uh, ending in the prison system, that will be also strata. Uh, which is related with the income somehow, but the way it's designed is basically to assess the area where you live, your living conditions, like physical infrastructure, basically. But of course, people in Strata 1 are those with in extreme poverty or in, under the poverty line. So um, how much is that strata system, how much is that imposed by force? How much police violence at the current protest do you believe is caused by that strata system, that the strata system depends upon this kind of deadly, violent police force? Well, the case of Cali uh, is a good example of how the police brutality is being deployed mainly in neighborhoods like Siloe or Agua Blanca that are uh, very low strata neighborhoods. And there, what we hear in social media is like people just can't go out. They just have shootings daily. And the police said, we are chasing criminals. We are chasing uh, people that attack a store. They were looting. And that chasing always take us to this neighborhood. And then we're shooting people in these neighborhoods. But this specifically happened there. Also, those, those neighborhoods are peripheric peripheric usually, and they are really disconnected with other areas of the city. So what happened there, you start a fire of six, really, really don't touch you or you don't even notice it. Uh, it's just people with their cameras uh, making this visible. Other than that, we will never find out. The BBC reported protests have continued for days, even after the government withdrew its proposed tax plan. Protest leaders say their demands now go much further than just the end of the tax plan and include calls for a basic income scheme, free tuition at public universities, and reform of the police. Have Colombians made these kinds of demands in the past? Are these typical protest demands that have been ignored in the past, or are these brand new demands from uh, activists? Well, the usual uh, in Colombian protests is to have the unions of teachers and the u university students out on the streets, and they usually mention these demands. Um, but 
it became more urgent for students to have free tuition the next semester since like because of COVID, they don't, they can't afford the next semester. Many of them are uh, quitting school to go work because their parents uh, don't have a job anymore. And that basically was the first, uh, the first demand that Duque said he will do it, the tuition, the free tuition. The, the situation is he, he did it like out of a real negotiation, like trying to, when you try to, to throw a bone to your dog when it's like giving a lot of trouble, but you really don't respect as president, he, he, he don't respect the, the demonstrators, the protesters to see it and have an agenda to really discuss this. All the time he has called this, okay, we're gonna have a conversation and people on the street say, we are not going to have a conversation. We are a force and we need to have a negotiation. And they finally met yesterday and they are going to have another meeting today in the afternoon uh, just trying to, to go through this agenda. Uh, but yeah, the, all these things related with education were there before. Uh, but other things are new, like for instance, Duke approved uh, to init initiate um, fumigations with glyphosate, I think is the word for this uh, fungicide against coca fields. And indigenous groups that are protesting around Cali uh, are also including that in, in their demands because they live in areas with coca fields and they're gonna get fumigated from the sky with airplanes. And it's proven everywhere that this uh, glyphosate is like really dangerous for people and for other uh, crops and for animals. So that's one of the things that is new in these in this demands. Well, let me ask you about that real quick, because the Biden administration announced that they were going to restart the fumigation plans uh, just a couple of months ago, maybe six weeks ago. They said that they were going to reinitiate the fumigation that had stopped in the past, apparently. So uh, what role did that Biden administration announcement of going back and continuing the fumigation process, what role did that play in the in the uprising? Well, um, as I told you, the uprising initially was because of the reform, but now people are holding on those other petitions that of course uh, affect them deeply, especially people in rural areas and these indigenous communities that are protesting because they basically live uh, around coca fields. What I think is like uh, Colombia is very obedient uh, when the United States uh, uh, has an agenda they need to implement, they have been working very hard on manual uh, destruction of the crops, but it's very expensive and it really doesn't go anywhere because they, they re, I forgot the word, but okay, they, they start the, 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 the coca field again after the, the eradication. So 
yeah, in, in April, Duque uh, re-implement uh, this measure. And people really, I really fighting with legal suits, with uh, international uh, uh, organizations of human rights against this. So they included in this, uh, in this uh, negotiation, the situation of the glyphosate. But what people who knows about this think is like Colombia has, all, has always knelt uh, for the United States agenda, and there is no way that they suspend the fumigation or change this uh, priority that is to fight against the coca fields. So you uh, mentioned Forrest Hilton in your piece. He's appeared on our show in the past, and he has recently said in an interview that what is taking place in Colombia is an uprising against now neoliberalism. Would you agree that that is the current thread that goes through all of the different issues, whether it comes to police violence, whether it comes to taxes, whether it comes to inequality, whether it comes to misogyny? Do you think that the th common thread through all of that is a protest against neoliberalism? Yeah, I agree with him. Um, yeah, many of the measures that Duque has implemented or tried to implement are really close to things that we know in the United States, like uh, hire people by hour, that here with unemployment close to 20% is kind of true because they're just going to stop hiring you in a, like in a formal monthly contract and give you a few hours. And that works in a very active market like the United States when you can work in many places or I'm not sure about that, but here definitely no, because it will just increase poverty. And all these measures that he proposed are very close to what, what is happening there. The last uh, pro proposal of a health reform is also focused on privatization of our health system and allowing the private uh, corporations uh, to, to fix the prices, to set the prices of procedures of medicine, when at least that's, that's something that we have, like with a government control, and that's why we still can access to a relatively affordable healthcare, but that was one of Duque, Duque's proposal uh, also this month, and people kept fighting also over that. And that's definitely, that definitely looks like neoliberalism for me. I've got one last question for you, Alejandro. We've been speaking with Alejandro Marin Buitrago, who wrote the Counterpunch article, Colombia on the Brink. Alejandro speaking to us live from Colombia, Pereira, Colombia. She's a PhD student in urban planning at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She's a Colombian lawyer and a former law professor in the Colombian cities of Pereira and Bogota. Our final question for each and every one of our guests, Alejandra, is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our <laughs> audience will hate your response. So you were just agreeing with For Forrest Hilton that this is an uprising against neoliberalism. The United States has been exporting neoliberalism all over the world and trying to implement it more and more here in the United States every day. 
So to what extent is the uprising in Colombia an uprising against influence from the United States? That's the question. Influence from the United States. Well, yeah, I think, um, yeah, there is a big part of that. Uh, as I told you, we are very uh, obedient with the instructions that came from there. We are very obedient with paying our debt, our servicing our debt, and that's part of the concerns of the government, that we are like, uh, we need that revenue when they reform to pay our, our uh, debt, international debt, and to fulfill all the uh, credit scoring uh, standards of the International Monetary Fund. And we have never stopped paying, and we have never think, we never thought that there are other options, or other alternatives, like renegotiating the debt, because we really need to look good with uh, yeah, international investors and the United States and whoever uh, is making those loans for, for Colombia. And that's big part of what people said. Think uh, in other options that doesn't, that don't imply to take your, your people to starvation, to keep your reputation as a good, good payer of your debt. Alejandra, thank you so much for being on our show today. This has been a fascinating conversation, and a lot of people were not getting much news about Colombia. Unsurprisingly, if there is an uprising against neoliberalism, which might be an uprising against U.S. influence somewhere, it doesn't get covered much here in the United States. So thank you so much for being on our show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is Hell, and if you liked what you just heard, please show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can find all of our merchandise or by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday, with a new monologue for me and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online at patreon.com slash thisishell. Jess, please remind us what's this week's question from Hell, and please tell us how our listeners are answering so far. This week's question from hell is what got you kicked out of the commune? I love that question. I can't believe we haven't done it before. I know, exactly. (laughs) Um, Dan K says, my aspartame addiction. (laughs) Warren L, creative differences. (laughs) Adam A, nobody there wanted to admit being an open, full-fledged member of a commune meant being a communist. It's like those guys who get offended when you call that shoulder bag they carry everywhere a purse. (laughs) Own it, you damn communists. (laughs) Garrett S, my crippling adrenochrome addiction. <laughs> ben A, severe procrastination. <laughs> what got you kicked out of the commune? Greg M, all the other residents were lifestyle anarchists. They didn't like it when I said they were capitalists in cheap clothing. <laughs> Lots of sectarianism in there. Yeah. In the, uh, Josh W, uh, accidentally cooked the family meal with ionized salt. <laughs> Steve K, writing my name on my tunics. <laughs> nice. Um, Jeff Dorchin, um, calling everyone bitch all the time, like sup bitches. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, that'll get you kicked out. Uh. <laughs> um, Jeff C, refusing to give second graders practice nationally stupid tests just before summer vacation. Um, and last, Corey G, peeing on the electric fence to prove that it can't run on vibes. <laughs> nice. Jeff, at one point, 
he was trying to take back the anti-Semitic K word as a uh, uh, an insult. He was trying to just use it with all of his Jewish friends. He would just call them by the K word. That's the first thing he would say to them. It did not go over well. Yeah, that'll also get you kicked out of the commune. <laughs> yeah, we'll get you kicked out of the commune. Jeff should have just put that in. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in Rotten History. And this time, I have to put a trigger warning on it. If you do not want to know the graphic cruelty of a lynch mob, I strongly suggest you stop listening now because... When I read this rotten history, I I didn't even know if I could read it on the air. So let's see how this goes. On May 18, 1918, 103 years ago, tomorrow, Tuesday, during a week-long wave of racist violence perpetrated by white supremacists in southern Georgia, a young man named Hayes Turner was one of eight black men lynched for supposedly conspiring to murder a local white farmer known for his cruel treatment of African-American farm help. So, black men may or may not have been conspiring to kill a white farmer who is definitely cruel to black men. Got it. But maybe. No evidence. Like the others, Hayes Turner was killed on mere suspicion with no evidence or trial. So, suspicion of conspiring. They may have been planning something or not. Either way, no evidence. Hayes Turner's 21-year-old wife, Mary Turner, who was eight months pregnant, immediately went to the authorities to protest his murder and report the men responsible. The next day, May 19th, she was seized and tied up by a white mob intent on making her an example. Black men were lynched because they have been planning on killing a cruel white man, although there is no evidence that they were, leading to the wife of one of the men who was lynched reporting it to the police for which she is brutalized. First, they took her to see the tree where the dead body of her husband was still hanging from the previous day. Then they carried her to another tree nearby, hung her upside down by her ankles, poured gasoline on her, and set her on fire. After her clothes burned, she was still alive, so one man took a butcher knife and cut her open. Her baby fell out and began to cry so several men stomped on it and crushed its skull. But Mary Turner still wasn't dead, so they finally pulled their guns and shot her to death. No one in the mob was ever held accountable. A local newspaper said Mary Turner had, quote, made unwise remarks. The murder went largely unmentioned among locals until 2010, when a historical marker was erected at the site. A journalist who went to photograph the marker a few years later found it riddled, with bullet holes I got nothing that's in Rotten History May 20th 1971 50 years ago this Thursday thousands died in one of the worst massacres in Bangladesh during that country's 1971 war of liberation India's independence from the British Empire in 1947 had been followed by a partition into two countries predominantly Muslim Pakistan and predominantly Hindu and Sikh India the partition became a violent upheaval in which some two million people were killed and millions more forcibly displaced. Who knew segregating by religion in an area that had been completely integrated would lead to divisiveness? <laughs> Go figure. It's like the British Empire destroyed India and then while they were leaving they decided to make sure that destruction was permanent. 
When it was over, the new nation of Pakistan existed as two big territories a thousand miles apart with India in between. A military junta based in West Pakistan gained political dominance. Meanwhile, East Pakistan, situated far across India in the Bay of Bengal, was the smaller of the two territories in land area, but bigger in population. In 1970, this bizarre arrangement proved untenable after a political party based in East Pakistan won a national election, but the junta in West Pakistan rejected the result and refused to give up power. Who knew having a nation split into two, a thousand miles apart from each other, might lead to divisiveness? Pretty fascinating. East Pakistan then declared itself the independent nation of Bangladesh. The generals in West Pakistan responded with a major military attack, and the Bangladesh War of Independence led to a full-blown genocide lasting most of 1971, in which West Pakistani troops and Islamist militias killed anywhere from 300,000 to 3 million Bangladeshi men, women, and children. It was on May 20th, 50 years ago this week, that West Pakistani troops showed up at the village market of Shuknagar in Bangladesh and opened fire on a crowd of refugees. Estimates of the men, women, and children slaughtered in the chaos of that day vary from several hundred to 10,000. The war would rage on until December when India entered the conflict on the side of Bangladesh. West Pakistan was then forced to back down and became simply known as Pakistan. And Ronaldo, you've outdone yourself. That is really, really, really rotten history. And more and more, I'm starting to think this is definitely hell. Jess, who is on tomorrow's show beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Tomorrow, we'll be talking with Janina Hurth and Marcus Ryan on their article, Algorithmic Assembly Lines, Digitalization, and Resistance in the Retail Sector for the Transnational Institute. I think it's just a comedy. I think it's a complete comic send-up. I think that's what it is. What about Wednesday's show? Um, we're working on Wednesday and Thursday. And Jeff Dorcha will be on Thursday to do a moment of truth, as he always does. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Jess Litka. Thanks to Alejandra, our guest today. Also, thanks to Jess, Alex for producer or for booking today's guest, and uh, thanks to Ronaldo for rotten history, no matter how rotten that was. And this week's hangover cure is sugar water, unless you're diabetic. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.